be a lot of synergy that um, both of our firms can bring all over the country, but definitely in the Rocky Mountain region. If you could take that and actually aggregate it to the team level, you can start to see what really makes a high-performing team and a low-performing team. We're also realizing that this is a bit of a blue ocean land grab, really, because from our research and, and understanding, 90% plus of the nonprofits out there are currently using email to manage the board. All right. Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups podcast. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today we are talking with four amazing guests. Um, from all over the country. Our, our first guests are from Denver, Colorado, and the entire Front Range area, although they are investors who invest in everywhere in the middle of the country. Uh, and then I have two founder guests. Uh, first founder is Kirsten Morfield, the co-founder of Cloverleaf, uh, an awesome Cincinnati-based startup that is growing like crazy. And then finally, uh, founder out of Indianapolis, Indiana, Jeb Banner, the founder and CEO of Boardable. I'm really excited to have everyone here on the show today. And as usual, we'll start our conversation with our first guests and talk a little bit about their story of how they got to where they are and a little bit of what their investment thesis is. Uh, those guests are John Francis, founding partner, and Clay Gordon, managing partner of Stout Street Capital. And uh, the thing I like about Stout Street, other than the fact that they're an investor in Powder Keg, is that they're really passionate about helping founders. And they're driven by this sort of extensive data analysis, market analysis, and due diligence, like any good VC. But they're really focused on these early stage tech companies in the middle of the country, especially sort of that Rocky Mountain region. Um, they've got a portfolio focused on software and fintech and advanced materials, but they've got investments in robotics and artificial intelligence. And they, they like to kind of play this semi-active role in their portfolio companies, which has been a huge benefit to us at Powder Keg. Uh, but today, I'm really excited to have them dialing in from Denver, Colorado. John and Clay, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for the warm introduction. Absolutely. Uh, it's really good to, to have you guys on the show. And uh, I'm going to get to ask some questions I've been uh, wondering for a while now, uh, even even beyond some of the questions I peppered you with when we first met. So um, let's just dive right in. Sound good? Yeah. Before we uh, dive into Stout Street uh, in particular, maybe uh, could you each give us a little bit of your own personal background? Clay, uh, how did you get into venture capital? Um. Yeah, sure. I um, So I went to school here and at University of Colorado and then was kind of looking to uh, kind of expand my reach. And I really wanted to move just to kind of get more exposed uh, to the entire U.S. And so I moved to Washington, D.C., where I worked at a nonprofit primarily focused around education of policy. And I stayed with that organization for about three years. And my primary role was as a fundraiser. And uh, building skills around fundraising is kind of where I saw my value add moving forward. Cool. And three years uh, spent in D.C. and in North Carolina, um, which was one of my territories. I knew that I wanted to move back to Colorado with, uh, you know, the wonderful um, economy that it had. And uh, it just kind of made sense with family here and job opportunities and then I moved back and started working at a, um, I guess, a larger portfolio company based here in Colorado, which John was working for. And um, I will stop there and kind of let John give his background. Yeah, John, how did you, uh, how did you and 
can you give us a little context of like what you were doing when uh, you first met Clay? So, yeah, I, I just moved to Denver when I met Clay. And before that, I, I was working at a, a boutique uh, shop, which did algorithmic trading for oil and gas. So it's just a very a completely different background. Uh, but what kind of drove me to Denver was the opportunities, especially in the early stage um, and, and also the startup scene here, right? So it, it was growing and it's in the middle of the country. It's act, it's accessible to uh, every single part. I, I mean, it, it's right in the middle and you could literally go any place uh, with a two-hour flight, right? So uh, it's right in the middle and that kind of helped help me kind of um, make that uh, move, uh, justify that move to Denver. Uh, and once I was here, uh, the whole community was so open in terms of uh, welcoming us being being the new guys in the scene. Uh, we just started two years ago where we essentially started from scratch. We both of us didn't have any background in uh, VC investing, though I have a little bit of background in finance. Um, the community here was so open. The, People were open to educate us and also uh, connect us with other VCs and also other VCs all around the country. That's really cool. So the, the, the fact that you guys ended up at the same company sort of seems like uh, it was fate for the two of you to meet. How did you uh, first start these conversations around maybe starting this VC fund? So I moved here partly to manage an existing portfolio of um, early stage investments uh, through one of the parent companies. Uh, and the comments right here was Clay's father who managed uh, all these uh, investments. And he wanted me to come and take a look at it and see how we can really grow that portfolio. And, and, and through doing that, and Clay was also part of that uh, and what we realized was this was a great opportunity and, and where we are kind of positions ourselves to really make a qualitative and a quantitative change in the ecosystem and be, um, be, the, be the guys who, who can actually change uh, how investments are done in early stage venture. In terms of the um, the sort of those early conversations, how did you decide uh, sort of like what amount you wanted to raise with your fund and uh, how you wanted to deploy that capital? So initially we, we thought of starting with a, with a small fund with a $10 million uh, commitment, essentially with, with half of it being saved for follow-on investments. And we wanted to quickly do 30 to 40 companies and being in with the finance background, I, I realized that for us to actually get a qualitative and a quantitative return uh, for the for the companies that we're investing in, we need to have a, a sizable amount of companies in our portfolio for us to drive those returns. So for us, um, it was a quick learning curve, right? So the first six months, we probably invested in three, but the, the last 12 months, we invested in 30 companies. So it's it, it was rapid uh, learning. And also, 
to some extent from where we started to where we are right now, it's it's been widely different, right? You start with a thesis and you kind of learn just like any startup, you pivot so many times, right? You pivot and kind of find what you were doing was not right. And it's uh, and it's similar for VCs as well. I mean, it's, it's very similar to a new startup in terms of learning and also finding uh, what mistakes you made and how do you correct them. What were some of the mistakes that you feel like you made early on and were able to correct and learn from? So as it, this is very similar to what VCs think is like not every business is venture backable, right? So uh, that was one of the few mistakes. The, the early mistakes that we made was essentially investing in people that we know. And that's not always a smart idea. Uh, I feel like investing in people, yes, it makes a lot of sense. That, and so there's a bias when when you know them, right? But it's it's always better when you invest in uh, invest in ideas which are outside of your circle and invest in. I would say it's easier to invest in strangers than investing in people that you know. Yeah, you, you kind of take out the emotional element to some degree. You, you filter out maybe the uh, ranges of emotion that might cause you to make a bad financial decision while maybe still leaving in some of that, that emotional radar so you can feel uh, and understand what makes this founder tick. Um, is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yes, absolutely. And yeah, that's probably one of, one of the mistakes that we did. The other ones probably like the diligence period. So for the stage of investments that we make, um, what we realized was the diligence period required for companies in this stage should be relatively short. So when we started off, we probably had um, diligence, uh, companies were in diligence for like two to three months. And that's not realistic, right? And, and a lot of VCs are still stuck in that mold. And we wanted to go in and kind of change that and have a decision in like one to two weeks. And we kind of pushed ourselves to do that. And that's that's kind of resulted in this speed of investment that helped us achieve this 30 companies in, in 12 months, which, which is kind of unprecedented in terms of speed uh, and also coverage in this area, at least. So in, in, in many ways, we are setting a new standard and also like creating a new paradigm, right? So for investing in early stage companies, I love it. And I, I think uh, getting more capital out there gives you more chances, obviously, for that uh, home run success, uh, that that portfolio diversification. And, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit of the thesis there, but you're in a lot of different things from robotics to AI to um, a lot of different things like platforms and marketplaces like Powder Keg. Hey, Matt, we just wanted to touch base to see if you got that last answer. Yes. Yes, we did. Sure. All right. So, John and Clay, uh, in terms of uh, where you are right now, you've got 30 investments that you've made in the last 12 months. What is next for Stout Street? We are just kicking off fundraising for our second fund. We would like to raise $20 million to uh, 
dive deeper into the ecosystem. Our goal over the next three years is to be into 100 portfolio companies to give us a critical mass that would allow for this cross-selling and synergy between our portfolio companies that I feel like would be a really big value add for not only our portfolio companies, our investors, but potentially corporate partners that would see us as a platform to innovate for their larger companies. Um, And so we really want to be strategic as we invest not only in the Rocky Mountain region, all over the country, but really build the right partnerships to drive that. And I feel like Powder Keg is definitely the best example. I mean, you guys definitely specialize in community, uh, not only with investors, startups, corporate partners, but also mentors, which is you know a viable uh, part of the ecosystem. And so, um, you know, we're extremely excited about the partnership with Powder Keg as that's really your specialty. And I really feel like there's going to be a lot of synergy that um, both of our firms can bring um, all over the country, but definitely in the Rocky Mountain region. And we are hoping, again, long-term strategy to be this uh, fast-paced driver for Denver or the Rocky Mountain region. We're really excited about it, too, and feel really lucky to have uh, investors that care about uh, obviously, first and foremost, returns for their LPs, but a close second, you know, the founder health, their portfolio, making sure um, that, they're, that they're finding and doing the diligence to find the best companies, regardless of where they're located. So if you're open to it, I would love to dive into uh, a little bit of a, the founder segment, give an opportunity for you to hear from Jeb at Portable and hear from Kirsten at Cloverleaf. Um, let's start with Jeb Banner based in Indianapolis, Indiana, and his company, Portable. Jeb, are you with us? Yep, sure am. Awesome, man. Could you tell us a little bit about what Bordable is doing right now? Yeah. So Bordable is board management software uh, primarily for nonprofits. Uh, three of the four founders have been founders of nonprofits as well. So it centralizes all of the activity of a board into one cloud-based platform. So it's meeting, scheduling, document sharing, tracking RSVPs, attendance, discussions, digital voting. And it's really tailored to integrate as much as possible with existing platforms that the users and the organizations are using. So we integrate with uh, Google Drive, Dropbox, OneDrive, email, calendar integrations as well to automate as much as we can those routine tasks of the board that take up a lot of time but don't bring a lot of value. And then we're looking to take it further towards engagement as we go. And so we're building in engagement tools to pull the board members more into the organization to help them be better advocates, to increase their attendance, to have them show up and volunteer, as well as, of course, uh, be active donors. So that's where the product's going. And we're about a year and a half uh, into it. We started last February. Uh, we're growing quickly and we're all over all over the world at this point. We're in 12 countries and, and uh, excited to see just how far we can go. There's 10 million nonprofits out there and we'd like to serve as many of them as we can. Well, it's been really awesome to follow the journey of Portable and just the rocket ship growth you guys have experienced uh, over the last year or so. Uh, Clay, I know you have, as you shared here on the podcast, have had some experience uh, with fundraising for nonprofits and I'm sure involved with the board there. Um, Do you have any questions for Jeb and what he's building at Portable? Yes. John, do you want to take the first question or do you? 
Yeah. So uh, you see a lot of these board management softwares, like how, how are you guys differentiating? I, I saw one of the things you said was engagement. Uh, I mean, how do you compete with really big guys like Captera and guys like that who are doing something similar? In, in the space, there's a lot of competition on the enterprise level in terms of corporate board management solutions. Most of those solutions out there like Diligent and Board Effect are built with the intent of serving the, you know, the Inc. 5000, if you will. Uh, and the problem set for a corporate board is very different than for a nonprofit board. Engagement's really not as much of a problem. There's monetary reasons for these board members to show up, to pay attention to the board books that get sent out, uh, to be engaged. But with nonprofit boards, you have a different set of pain points and problems. And the solutions out there don't really solve for those problems. So what we've done so far is to build a lot of the foundational pieces that do solve the board management issues that, yes, both corporate and nonprofit boards experience. We've done it more with an eye towards nonprofits, like we've built an agenda builder with templates that really accelerates the, the building of agendas. You have annotation functionality for people to take private notes. And those can be used by either sector. But where we're going is to build into the tool that, you know, functionality really around those four things that I, I mentioned earlier, uh, incentivizing attendance, uh, encouraging volunteering. So not just so sort of the muscle side of being in a, on a board, advocating. So sharing content uh, and then also pulling out your wallet and donating. These are four problems. The three of them, at least, are very distinct to nonprofits. So as we go down this path, we're going to differentiate with that. Then the third phase of the, the product vision is talent. A big problem for a lot of nonprofits is finding the right talent, both on a skills level, but also in terms of diversity and gender. And so we're looking to build functionality into Boardable to allow boards to bring in talent that's interested in serving on their board and build a talent marketplace uh, on a regional basis initially as we, we roll it out. Okay. So in terms of a market, uh, you're really going after just the nonprofits. Is there like uh, a typical nonprofit that fits your profile? Um, and how do you do the outreach essentially to your potential customers? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for instance, United Ways are, are a very a typical client for us. And we have a partnership with United Way Worldwide now as a preferred vendor so we can market to their 1,800 United Way affiliates around the world. Uh, there's uh, 50 plus here just in Indiana, for instance. Uh, and uh, then you think about all those other nonprofits of a similar size, the YMCA's, the Habitat for Humanities, the Girl Scouts. Uh, these, are, these are everywhere, and they're all affiliated. And one of our approaches here, we have four legs to our go-to-market strategy digital marketing, which is really the, the main engine. And you mentioned Captera, which is a great directory and listing for board management solutions. And this, this is where we get a lot of our, our leads. We also do a lot of uh, content marketing and other paid social channels. We have partnership networks like the United Way One, and we have referral, reviral piece, because all these boards are interconnected. And so Boardable travels with board members as they go to different boards. They say, why aren't we using Boardable? That's where the 30-day free trial and, and comes in, you know, helps them, you know, say, hey, let's just try it out. 
Uh, and then the fourth is we do some direct uh, email outreach via partner to targeted prospects. We reach out to about a thousand unique prospects a month through this partner and through a drip campaign. And then when they engage, we engage with a demo or trial as we move them through the sales process. So uh, currently, what are you guys doing in revenue and how many, uh, how many nonprofits have signed up for this? Totally optional. If you if you want to pass on some of those questions, considering we'll be pu- publishing this publicly, yeah, I would be happy to have a, a conversation off the record on our numbers. I'll, I'll I'll share because I need to keep some of that off the off the public record right now. Um, but uh, I'm I'm happy to go into more detail. Uh, but we're around 200 customers. Got it. Great questions from John and Clay, and I, I'm sure. In terms of, uh, can you can... talk a little bit about the capital okay. raise and what, what do you guys think, and why would you need? Uh, what are the use of funds? Sure. So we finished a seed round earlier this year, and uh, and so we're we're in between raises right now. Right now, we are doing a lot of the visioning for uh, what the next raise will look like in terms of its size, whether we potentially do a bridge, you know, sort of a follow-on uh, seed, or whether we go to an A series. So I'm working with the, our board right now, uh, along with some other people that, uh, you know, are more experienced in that zone. So we're looking at something late this year, beginning of next year, beginning to do a raise. But we did a, uh, a, a over a million dollar seed round earlier uh, this year, and so we've got some capital now to run with, and and that we've just been deploying it. Sounds good. Uh, so, is there any metrics you you're looking to hit for doing one of those scenarios, like the bridge or series A, or any of the inside round or? Um, Yes, I, I, and I think that uh, Matt needs to, he's trying to jump in. I'm not sure if you heard him there, but um, just real quick, uh, we're looking at getting to a million ARR as fast as we can. Uh, we're also looking to get to cash flow break even or at least get inside of it, uh, which we, we uh, you know, think we can do here in the next six to nine months. Um, because of the structure of the business, the annual prepaid accounts give us a nice cash flow advantage. Uh, since that's about 70% of our sales are annual prepaid. So every month we see uh, increases uh, over in terms of quarter over quarter there. So we, we have some internal goals that we're looking at, uh, but we're also realizing that this is a bit of a, a blue ocean land grab, really, because from our research and, and understanding, 90% plus of the nonprofits out there are currently using email to manage their board. I love what you're doing, Jeb, and I, I'm not sure if maybe uh, John and Clay were unable to uh, to hear me there. Um, but John and Clay, right, are you able frozen. to hear me now? All right, Kirsten, can you hear me? <laughs> uh, me too. Me too. Hopefully, he'll he'll come back on. I, I think we're f- figuring out this might not be our long term podcasting solution. <laughs> It came so highly recommended. Jebo is actually the one that was on a couple podcasts with this recording software and was like, it's awesome. It's going to be perfect. And uh, it's it's been a little bumpy so far. Yeah, that might that might be it. Trying to get, you know, four different cities on one uh, one call.
Um, hooray. All right. So end segment with Jeb and, um, let, let's, let's shift gears and we'll all introduce Kirsten here and we'll, uh, we'll just dive into Q and A with Kirsten. Sound good? Cool. Great. Uh, awesome to hear what Jeb is building with Boardable, and I'm sure he'll have some questions for John and Clay here in just a second. But first, I would love to hear from Kirsten Moorfield, co-founder of Cloverleaf based in Cincinnati. Kirsten, can you give us the quick flyover of what you're doing with Cloverleaf? Yeah, absolutely. So we are a team building software and we deploy psychology data to help team members better understand not only themselves, but the people on their teams so that they can have better working relationships. And ultimately for the company, what that means is uh, a better bottom line and higher productivity. In terms of your uh, sort of unique approach and how you got to this market opportunity, can you give us a little bit of background of how you got there? Yes, absolutely. So my background is really in working with project teams. And Matt, I know you are highly entertained by the fact that my first job out of college was marketing for a dog sledding company, <laughs> but that was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, it's a fun fact. And then I moved on. Um, I stayed in the marketing world and I actually went in, more into the business and operations side of marketing, managing project teams that were doing um, pretty large projects for Intel and Cisco and IBM. And really, it was there that I kind of saw what makes a really high performing team, um, some really low performing teams, and really just a lot of projects going over timeline and over budget. And um, the company that I worked in had a really awesome company culture. And everybody loved coming to work, even though work was often really hard. And um, just through conversations with a couple of coworkers that I had there, it's kind of a long story, but eventually we just kind of realized, you know, if you use some of this psychology data that a lot of companies have invested in, but don't know how to use, like say a personality profile or a strengths assessment, if you, if you could take that and actually aggregate it to the team level, you can start to see what really makes a high performing team and a low performing team. And it's not necessarily that there's a perfect team profile. It's more or just being able to help people understand their own strengths and weaknesses. And the same thing about their coworkers can turn conflict into productivity. And, um, and, and not only that, it just creates a much more enjoyable workspace, um, lower turnover, higher engagement, you know, all of those things that a lot of companies are trying to crack the code on right now. I love it. Questions from John and Clay there in uh, Denver. So th this sounds like very, very academic uh, and, and things that can <laughs> turn out a lot of people. How, how do you how do you communicate this? I mean, even looking at MBTI and tests like that and that kind of give like psychological profiles of people uh, that that's been around for a little while. And how do you do that in real time and how do you sell that? All right, I'm back. Can you guys hear me? Yes. I can just hop right back into that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, John, that's a really good question. So actually 80% of Fortune 500s have invested into some sort of personality and or strengths assessment across their organization. And less than 20% of them are actually storing it or using it. So um, it, it's actually been a really easy sell from that standpoint because we're helping them increase the ROI that, on something that they've already spent 
thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on. Um, and you are right, though, it is highly academic. So we are really passionate about the fact that there's incredible research and data already out there, and we don't need to reinvent any wheel. We just need to actually apply technology to it so that it can really make a difference for the people who are inside the organization and for the organization itself. Okay, so, I mean, how does this warrant, like, a, a SaaS model, like, for ongoing yes. uh, use? It, it, it looks like, okay, it's like a one-time profiling thing, and it kind of stays in. I, I understand in cases where you have high attrition rates, so, like, it, it's like you're talking about a few people adding on. So would that justify having a SaaS platform just for those new people. I love that question. It tees me up perfectly for, for really where we're seeing a ton of traction and value in what we're doing. So currently the model with, um, with a lot of the data that we use is a one-time engagement, just like you said. It's, uh, maybe it's a offsite retreat. Maybe it's uh, you bring in a coach or a consultant, or maybe it's just you have your people take this assessment so you can, um, they can be more self-aware. And what happens is people get these really good, you know, 10 to 40 page reports. They're really insightful, but it's a lot to take in. They read it maybe once and they don't know it about their team members and they put it away in a drawer and it's done. That's the end of it. And six months later, they don't remember any of it. So there have been a lot of studies on this. Classroom learning, after two days, 95% of the content is forgotten. Um, it McKinsey found that it takes 40 interactions with a point of information to actually start to change behavior. And that's really why companies invest in this type of information is because they want to change the behavior of their people so that their teams become high-performing teams. So what we do is we take all of this highly academic uh, information and we break it down into really understandable and digestible one to two sentence insights and tips. And we put that in front of people where they're working on a daily basis. So we integrate with email, we integrate with calendar, with Slack, we're building out text. Um, we, we are really passionate about the fact that our end users, and we have, we have more enterprise suite for, for the higher level, but our end users are really not going to come to our platform and we don't want them to. We want to come to them where they are so that we can really make a difference to their work experience. Uh, can you just tell us your uh, traction so far? I'm curious about just the interactions that you've had with the companies thus far. Yeah, that's a great question. So we have we started about a year and a half ago, and um, we now have 40 enterprise clients. Um, in terms of our, our traction within them, we have a less than 1% unsubscribe rate from our push notifications. We have an over 80% open rate. Um, so that's really exciting. And I've also mentioned that, um, that I've focused so far really on our end users, but we also have really awesome capabilities for managers and for enterprise users. So we work really closely with managers who are just trying to solve some sort of an issue on their team, whether it's interpersonal conflict between two team members or whether it's, this is a, a highly skilled team. Oh, did you lose me? We can hear her. We, we did, and then I think she fell off. Kirsten, can, I don't know I'm if you're still here. there, yeah, but here. we got all that. Okay, good. Uh, I don't remember where I left off. Um, so we also have a lot of capability for managers and for... Yeah. 
Okay, so we focus a lot on the end user, but we also have a... Kirsten, I think we may have lost you. Are you back, Kirsten? Oh, you can hear her, okay. Last, last I heard was focus on the end user, which is a good note to end on. <laughs> well, uh, let's um, let's save a little bit of time if we, if we want to dive back into the product as Kirsten uh, refreshes. Maybe uh, we could start with some question and Q and A for John and Clay. Um, Jeb, do you have any questions as, uh, as you were listening to kind of John and Clay's background, uh, any questions for them and what they're doing there at, at Stout Street in Denver? So I'm back, but I've lost yeah, Jeb. I think, I think I've lost Jeb too. <laughs> this is, uh, I can I can just Please. finish my answer Please to that do. one real quick, and then we can go Please into Q&A. Yep. Okay, so we, we do focus a lot on the end user, and that's what I've been talking about so far. But we have a suite of, of capabilities for managers who are really looking at their existing team. How do I improve this team? How do I solve this interpersonal conflict between these two team members? Or our team is great, but we have a really big challenge coming up. How can we most uh, effectively rally together around it? And then we also have enterprise users who they're looking at, hey, we're doing M&A. How do we merge these two companies? What teams do we form? Um, why is my department in Maine performing better than my department in Tennessee? What, what's causing turnover inside my organization? So this data can be applied to really big uh, problems that a lot of companies are trying to solve every single day. I love it, Kirsten. What are you most excited about right now at Cloverleaf? I am really excited about our team, actually, and that's not a canned response. It's really true. We have just hired out a really phenomenal team. So we closed our seed round in February, and we have just now finalized really our, our hiring for 2018. And um, we've found a lot of success in hiring people who don't necessarily have the perfect experience, but they have such a high drive and ambition and they really fit the the culture that we have created for our organization. And um, a, a, a true testament to that is the fact that we actually were, we were behind schedule on hiring, but we never lost time in terms of productivity for our company. So every person that we've hired on has actually exceeded our expectations in productivity because we've hired the right culture fits. I yeah, so good. so now's now's a section of, of my favorite section of the show where the founders get to ask our our main guests uh, a few questions uh, about some of the things that they've learned or maybe even some feedback on their product and what they're building. Uh, Jeb, any uh, any questions or feedback you want to get from uh, our friends at Stout Street? Uh, I my question was more around their involvement post investment, what that looks like, you know, what, what, what kind of role they take, what kind of value they bring. Um, they started to, I think, address a little bit of that, but I'd like them to go a little deeper if they could. Yeah. So the thing is, 
one of the main things that we want to want to build is kind of cross-selling opportunities between our own companies and also have a large enough portfolio for that to be meaningful. I mean, I mean that that seems a very very big answer, but uh, and that is very very real in large portfolios that that companies themselves can be pretty. The, the access that they get to some of the other portfolio companies is pretty meaningful. Uh, and having said that, that we also do what, what other VCs do in terms of uh, networking or like connecting uh, our portfolio companies with other VCs and essentially helping them close their rounds or uh, helping them raise their second round or third round. And we also do our pro rata for each and every one of their follow-on rounds. So, we want to, though we don't take any active roles in terms of both seats, basically because we don't invest enough in any of those companies that we merit taking a board seat, uh, it becomes more on the passive side, but we do kind of actively engage with companies and founders to help them achieve their goals, also like make introductions and also make sure that they are funded well enough uh, and they don't hit any of those roadblocks that early stage companies do hit and they want that kind of nurturing earlier on. Uh, and we also want to build that community. But right now, we still consider ourselves pretty small. Even with like 33 companies in our portfolio, ideally by the end of like 2019, we want to be at least close to 100 companies, right? So mm-hmm. if, if you have 100 companies, then you have meaningful cross-selling opportunities, you have meaningful dialogues between CEOs, and you have a community that can help you. Uh, other questions? I, I think I started I started fresh. Kirsten, do you mind asking the, the summarized version of your question? Yep. So John and Clay, you guys have invested in a wide array of companies. You'll see a lot of different versions and stages of life cycle, how do you see your companies defining product market fit? Yeah, so one of the things that we do is, yeah, look at revenues and look at customers, right? So that's one of the key indicators of traction and also product market fit. Most of the companies that we invest in are post-product, post-revenue companies, so though, though we stick around in the seed and early stage range, we tend to avoid companies that that are still pre-concept or like pre-product or even pre-revenue. Uh, so that's one of the things that we do to kind of establish product market fit. Uh, and you still have companies that uh, that kind of pivot even after having around 3 p.m. and people uh, kind of change their uh, target markets and everything, and that happens in every single every single startup, right? And, and true product market fit is probably at around maybe when you have ten or fifteen million in ARR, right? And, and we can't really wait till that long, but we, I don't know, it's kind of a, a, a kind of a cheat formula but that's something that we look at it's very hard for us to analyze how good the product market fit is but we try our best in terms of like talking to the customers and also looking at how sustainable that market is in terms of revenue and also recurring wise if 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 the customers are ready to pay and see the value in those companies so, um, so you, you really look at it, at it of, uh, how much a 
customer is willing to buy. Are you looking for, you know, like specific profiles of customers or numbers of customers, or is it defined by the problem they're solving? You know, like how, how do you really define it? So, so in any established market, so most of the companies that we invested in either cater to an established market um, or there, there are a few exceptions, maybe like less than 20% of our companies are like in extremely new markets. But most of the companies do fit that mold where they are actually serving an established market. One of the things that we look at is if an established player like a Fortune 500 company or one of, one of the really big companies you know, takes that on and they're willing to run that as a pilot and see, uh, are willing to take that risk <laughs> in terms of implementing that software or that system or uh, what, what are they selling, right? to bring it into their fold and kind of nurture them and they're willing to do that, that kind of signifies for us as something that there's value in what they're doing. Right? If, if we don't see that, we kind of doubt it. And if, if, it, if people and founders are essentially going with a thesis that, oh, this is something that can add value, we usually discount that. We want to see that coming from the industry folks who they are actually serving. Got it. So it's really about customers' willingness to buy and to take the risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it, ultimately, it has to sell. Whatever whatever you build, it has to sell, right? I mean, that's where the value is. And that's what we want to make sure that some of our companies can do and will do in the future and can do it successfully and scale it up. I've really enjoyed uh, these these questions and the answers and just the conversation that we have going. And I know we've had a few technical difficulties. So what I want to do is uh, maybe close with a little bit of info from each of you. And what I'd love for you to share is um, maybe what you like about your local community, uh, your local tech community, uh, and that startup environment where you are. Because we have uh, four great guests from three different locations. And I was wondering if, Kirsten, maybe uh, you could kick us off by telling us a little bit about what you love about Cincinnati uh, and that environment for starting up. Of course. I am very passionate about Cincinnati. It's my hometown. I went away looking for a better place, and I couldn't find one. So after six years of that, I came back home and Really, why I came back home is because of the community in Cincinnati. Um, it just runs deep, and everybody jokes about how it's just a really big, small town. And I've found that to be really true in the startup world as well. So I there there are people here who are willing to give a lot of time and advice and just tell their stories and be really honest and vulnerable about the, the hard lessons learned, which helps all of us go leaps and bounds farther, that we don't have to make the same mistakes. We can just learn a lot from each other. So that's really what I love about Cincinnati is how much the community is really involved and dedicated to helping each other. That's awesome. I, and I love the vibe in Cincinnati right now. Um, there are so many great accelerator programs. Obviously, Centrifuge is a huge piece of that ecosystem there. And then you have a lot of really great big companies like Kroger and P&G uh, or Procter & Gamble that are doing their own innovative things at a corporate level. Uh, so appreciate you sharing. Uh, Jeb, I'm going to kick it over to you. Um, what do you like about the startup and, and tech environment here in Indianapolis? I think that it's a a really good blend of of a helpful community. People are not looking to to cut each other down; they're looking to help each other up. 
uh, a pretty good amount of capital, especially for on the startup side. I think we're missing some of that middle capital uh, for scale up, but still a really good startup capital available and uh, a really nice talent pool with the acquisition of exact target with the university systems. We've got a really good pool of talent here. So hiring good people is, is possible here without paying West Coast or East Coast salaries. Love it. And John and Clay, what, uh, what do you like most about Denver in the front range? Um, I would say the collaboration, being in such an underserved market, everyone really needs to be collaborative if they want the ecosystem to succeed. And uh, I feel like the give first attitude is definitely here as well. And um, yeah, I would just say the overall collaboration is everyone kind of wants the ecosystem to succeed. And so that means you're kind of uh, cheering on your fellow man and fellow woman to succeed. And um, it's just a, it's a very easy and fun uh, ecosystem to be a part of. Well, I hope that uh, Kirsten, Jeb, and I can come down and visit you in Denver soon. I hope you'll get up here to the Midwest again uh, soon. Thank you, all of you, all four of you, uh, for sharing your knowledge on this episode of Powder Cake Igniting Startups. Uh, really eager to follow your continued success, uh, both with the fund and with your respective startups. Uh, please make sure, uh, you, you friendly Powder Cake listeners, to check out each of these organizations, uh, stoutstreetcapital.com, Bordable dot com and cloverleaf.me. That's cloverleaf, all one word. Uh, these are amazing founders. We're going to link up their social profiles um, all in the show notes on powderkeg.com. Uh, please make sure you subscribe if you haven't yet uh, so you can join us on the next episode of Powder Keg Igniting Startups. Mm-hmm.